morning. <laughs> it's the afternoon, Edwin. It's, it's afternoon. Well, Why do I you woke have Pac-Man sitting in your lap? That looks like several amoeba bags. Oh, that looked like that looked like a Pac-Man who'd been abused. Yeah, I thought it was a Pikachu. It's caught going to amoeba every day, man. Wow. <laughs> That's called a, a problem, also. You're the problem. <laughs> Welcome, Secret Movie Clubbers, to Secret Movie Club Podcast 62. Today, we are actually doing our first episode ever on anime, which in a moment, our special guest and uh, Secret Movie Club team member, Kelly Jean, is going to take us through uh, history. But I'm going to introduce this roughly as animation that came out of Japan, sort of originates from Japanese manga and then Japanese TV and Japanese features. We did an animation podcast before, but that really focused on Disney and American animation. So today, we're going to be talking about Japanese anime, which is its own thing and a huge genre in cinema. But before we go further, uh, let's start with our special guest. Give it up for Kelly Jean Janich. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's cool to be here. It's wonderful to have you. Kelly Jean is a new Secret Movie Club team member. She was coming to Secret Movie Club events for a long time. Kelly Jean, you were one of the kindest, most persistent people I ever met. Every time I told you, like, oh, we're going to talk, we're going to talk, you just you stayed patient. Kelly Jean is an artist. She's also uh, one of our newest co-programmers. She is working on a golden age of Mexican uh, cinema series that we hope uh, we're going to get going on and, and have in 2022. And Kelly Jean is also... Also, our resident sort of historian and uh, knowledge base about anime. But it's wonderful to have you on this podcast and on the team. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Who else is here? Oh, he hello. It's Daniel. Hey, it's me, Connor Lloyd Cruz, the people's champion. Hello, America. Always. <laughs> he, he, when he said that he held up a dvd of steven spielberg's always exactly i actually would say anybody who's listening to the podcast probably figured that out before we said that and my name is craig i'm the founder programmer of secret movie club it is wonderful to have everybody announcements at the head so when you guys listen to this on friday we are in the middle of june actually we're heading i can't believe 2021 is already almost halfway over uh we are summer solstice mode right now this friday we're actually doing our first triple feature. So things are in a good way when you think about it, going pretty good that we're doing a triple feature inside after 15 months of not being able to be in a theater. But we're going to be doing Airplane, Top Secret, and The Naked Gun, three parody spoof movies from the 80s. The first two done by the team of Abram Zucker, and The Naked Gun was just Zucker on his own. I have a very soft spot for those movies. And in fact, we'll be talking about this at the end, but this is going to be our podcast for next week. But this Friday, that's what we're doing on. 35 millimeter Paramount Archive prints. Saturday at the Million Dollar Theater, June 26th, we are doing another Kubrick double on 35, Paz of Glory at 11 a.m., and Barry Lyndon at 2 p.m. So lock and load for that, two period piece Kubricks. And uh, like we said last week, and this is very important, we are now in the middle of what would we hope for you be you making a short film. The Secret Movie Club and Channel 35 Short Film Festival 2021, we are going be accepting submissions all the way through July 12th. So you still have a few weeks at midnight. So you even have that whole day. But uh, the rules are five minutes or fewer. Make sure everything is licensable because it's going to go on TV. If you get picked, you're going to get a hundred bucks and get interviewed and your interview and your short will play for a year on channel 35. And we also just ask that you remember the theme is Los Angeles rises. Basically, you know, like welcome back from this year off and LA. You can interpret that however you want. But as I said before, if you turn in a short that you shot in Hong Kong that 
doesn't mention LA at all, we probably can't use it. But anything even marginally LA related, we can use. We have a lot more to announce, a lot more coming up, but let's leave it at that. As always, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Just go to our website, secretmovieclub.com. It's got everything there, including all the short film fest rules and submissions, yada, yada. That's it. Kelly, one of the first things I remember you and I talking about, you know, you you wrote and you wanted to be a part of the team and you were really interested in programming and putting together because you're an artist and you're a drawer and a sketcher and being involved in some of the graphic design elements. And but one of the first things I remembered is after you and I had had a conversation, you said, also, I'd love to be involved in anime. And you gave me these great titles. You were like, you know, I think we should show this. I think we should show that. And I hadn't heard of some of them. And it turns out that, you know, you have this wealth of knowledge about anime. So would you uh, just maybe give us a little history about anime and why you love it? Like anime to us in America, it's very specific. It's the Japanese animation. But in Japan, anime, where they call it anime, it's derived from animation. It's any kind of animation. And I'm really big on animation. That was my major before going into film and television because I love storytelling. But anime in Japan just refers to any kind of animation. And it really started in like the late 19th century. Like 1906 was the first short film. It was called um, Katsudo Shashin, which was a young Japanese boy just drawing Japanese characters on like a chalkboard. And the way animation was in Japan at first was cutout animation. And even now, they still do a lot of limited animation, which is very different to America because in Disney, they do cell animation, full animation, which is showing a drawing every two frames versus in Japan, they typically show a drawing every three frames. It's cheaper for the budget. I think they used to kind of do that kind of thing with American cartoons like Hanna-Barbera would do that a lot where they would have just like close ups of characters and like their mouth moving and stuff. Yeah, they do a lot of still slow motion shots and they still do that to this day in uh, modern animes. One of the big um, movies in America that influenced Japanese animation was Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. The first Japanese color film was 1958. It's called Haku Jaden, The Legend of the White Snake. It's based off a Chinese folktale. But like the guy who made it, his name was Okawa Hiroshi. She? I'm sorry if I butcher any of the names. I try my best. Um, Hayao Miyazaki saw this film, The Legend of the White Snake, and he was so blown away with the color of it. And he was just astonished by its quality. And he saw it on a break studying from his college exams. For folks who don't know Hayao Miyazaki, he is the one responsible for some of the greatest animated movies of all time, including My Neighbor Totoro, uh, Spirited Away, Kiki's Delivery Service, Porco Rosso. Probably the equivalent of Disney in Japanese animation. Also, one of the things I was talking to you about is when you talk to people who love anime, it's not just feature film anime. There's a lot of anime that's series television anime that people are as passionate about as we might be about feature film. I can talk about the first hit TV anime. It was Astro Boy, 1963. January 1st was the very first hit broadcast for anime. And after that, maybe my dad mentioned this. He grew up watching them like Speed Racer, Kimba and the White Lion, if anyone's familiar with that. Those were the very first, like 1960s was when like anime tv really hit it off even outside of the shows now there's um what is it ovas ovas kind of the equivalent of like dtv here like direct to video to me growing up i used to know ovas are like 
really like short films of a movie or a story. I am familiar with Studio Trigger's Little Witch Academia. That was an OVA that came out like a movie 2013. But then it ended up getting another movie and a TV show. So let's, uh, so, you know, like everything, there is no way we're going to cover anime today. Well, we should probably call this episode like intro to anime. We'll call this episode anime 1.0. You are not alone. (laughs) A week or so ago, time is all blurring for me now. Maybe it was two weeks ago. We did a double bill on 35 of Cowboy Bebop, the movie and uh, Metropolis, the 2001 movie, both of which are considered great anime feature films. Cowboy Bebop is really interesting because it was a TV show and then they did the movie and there were, I think, 25, 26 episodes of Cowboy Bebop total. And the movie, even though it was done when the series ended, takes place between episodes 22 and 23, I believe. So there's a whole end of the Cowboy Bebop that they didn't really want to get into in the feature. So they put it in between two episodes. You know, being American and growing up with American cinema and also too, my mom limited us to one hour of TV a week, which now I'm super grateful for. And all I got to watch was Sesame Street till I was five. (laughs) or six. That was at Sesame Street in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And then when I was five and six, I was allowed to choose one half hour. And it was like, I mean, now people are going to be like, what? But back in the 80s, it was the Cosby show before we all knew what was going to happen with Bill Cosby. Back then, Bill Cosby was America's dad, was the Cosby show and Family Ties. And that was it. So I didn't watch any anime, no Dragon Ball Z, no Pokemon, no anything. And it was only as an adult that people were like, check out anime. What struck me, but it struck me as an adult was what amazing world building there is in anime. There's world building at a level that I actually don't think you see in almost any live action or other. Like when I watched Cowboy Bebop, that fusion of sci-fi and noir and jazz, I'd never seen something like that. And with Metropolis, that fusion of the cute characters with those underground labyrinth markets and the robotics, the cityscapes, it was mind-blowing to me. And I think we've seen some American filmmakers, notably Robert Rodriguez and James Cameron, recently try to do it. But I don't know, I don't know that I've seen anybody actually fully successfully do that animate a live action thing. I love Cowboy Bebop and I love Metropolis. Cowboy Bebop, I have to watch the movie again full through. But I remember watching Cowboy Bebop for the first time. I'm actually wearing a t-shirt of them when I saw a jazz performance play their music live at Anime Expo. To me, that's just such an iconic and classic anime. Yeah, what is it about it that you think made it such an international, worldwide hit? I have to say, like, the tone and the characters. Spike is just so mysterious, yet confident. I really like anime conceptually, but I have the most basic, like, 30-year-old American white guy tastes in anime, and so I love Cowboy Bebop, which isn't, like, I'm not trying to be dismissive, but Cowboy Bebop is a very, like, popular, like, to say that's your, like, favorite. It's not, like, a very cool thing to say, I guess, maybe. But I think one of the reasons Cowboy Bebop is probably such a good international hit is it's a very like worldwide influenced anime. It is an anime that is as influenced by or seems to be at least influenced by like Western media as much as other Japanese media. It's sort of what they say about Akira Kurosawa, that Kurosawa was so international because he was so influenced by European literature and American cinema that for some reason, Kurosawa movies, everybody around the world could get into them. And that some 
sometimes there are certain kinds of cinemas that are so like American high school comedies don't travel anywhere because nobody in the rest of the world understands what the hell that's about. And they just can't relate to American high school very much. And they're like, wow, well, okay, whatever. Cowboy Bebop is my favorite anime. Proving my theory right again. <laughs> this was the case for, for you and maybe for Kelly Jean and Edwin. But back when I was nine or 10, when Cartoon Network in the States took on Toonami, uh, it was really, I think, instrumental in introducing an audience to anime, which I had no knowledge of before. And kind of brought out this thing where all of a sudden your comic book stores were carrying manga. Manga being Japanese comic books. Which they may have had in the past, but it was sort of a brought to light for a younger generation. This entire thing we had no idea of, perhaps, especially coming from the, the South. The internet wasn't like the big thing yet, so there was no way to research these things. So what we funneled through on the television and what Toonami introduced and promised and like hinted at with its stuff and its sort of daily, its release schedule and, and the way it would program things was like super influential. And Bebop was the first thing I really took to. That stayed for 10 years in terms of really, f I have not followed stuff in recent years so much, just from a time perspective, but I know that it's kind of insane. I think the most interesting thing about anime in terms of its worldwide, or specifically American fan base, is where an American comedy may not travel, there is something about anime that speaks to people, because I don't think anime tries to compromise and be always something that is easily understood, but the fan base, the foreign fan base especially, seems very adamant to learn the culture and understand it, versus having it be catered toward them. And that seems kind of unique to that art form. I mean, if you've ever been to like an anime expo, it's very overwhelming and insane. And there's this interesting thing where it's people who are so interested in the culture that anime presents and Japanese culture as a whole that they study and they want to learn about all things within it. Whereas like if you watch an American comedy overseas, I don't think you say, wow, I, I want to be that. You may, you know, you may see a cool guy and want to do that. But I think anime specifically with sort of its fan base is really specific in that. There is a type of fandom to it that dictates style, music taste, what food you're trying, learning a language that I think is super unique to just that art form that I think is very cool. Kalabipop. I watched it. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> the show for Kalabipop is insane. I like how each episode title is a name of a song, which is really freaking cool. And also the Spike character is kind of like, you know, Philip Marlowe. That's the vibe I get off. He's like a Philip Marlowe in, in space and also like a cowboy as well. Kind of like Elliot Gould's character from The Long Goodbye, which he put the pre-show for Connor, which was awesome. And uh, the show is also influenced by John Woo's The Killer, which is in one of the episodes where they have a, like a kick-ass shootout, which is amazing. I watched anime during my high school phase. You had a phase where you went to high school? <laughs> what does that mean exactly? It means I, I had an anime phase when I was in high school, and I just like... But you said you had a high school phase. Well, it's the same thing, all right, man? All right, let's keep up, all right? <laughs> I always go down to Little Tokyo to go to the store, buy my mangas and read and be a freaking weeb, and then watch um, Adult Swim at night on Saturdays for Toonami, of course, which I watch with my cousin. Mainly, we watch Fooly Cooly, which is outstandingly amazing and very underrated that no one talks about at all. Yeah, Fooly Cooly is really good. Or FLCL. It's very hard to explain. Even I would have to watch that anime again. It's very abstract, I would say. Like, there's a lot of symbolism, even. It's kind of got, like, a lone wolf and cub vibe. It's about, like, a kid traveling with this odd woman and all the stuff that they encounter. They ride on a motorized scooter and one of them has a huge guitar. There's this robot with a TV head. He's like very iconic. We're going off with Connor was says, I do think that 
Bebop's sort of Western aesthetic made it feel accessible. I read a thing that was about how it's it's the future, but it's a future that feels kind of real. It seems somehow attainable in a way that some science fiction sort of doesn't, where like the stuff that they're doing is sort of just stuff that you did anyway, but now there's like, oh, you have a spaceship now, but like life isn't really that different. Yeah, I liked in the movie how they eat ramen. You think like they, they're all super cool, but they also are like super lonely and struggling with like relationships and just existing in general on top of this thing that they do. It has these kind of interesting dynamics that kind of made it to a kid and to now feel accessible. And one of the few things that when we post, because whenever we do an anime screening, people always want to know if it's the dubbed or subbed version. And this is the weird one where we get a lot of people that are like, the dubbed version is superior because everyone you grew up with it and they want that. And I think that's really interesting because I don't think that's the case with any other anime film that we would screen. It's probably the best English dub ever. I agree with y'all, Carter. It's the only anime where the dub is okay because... It sounds right and perfect. Like, there's nothing you can change that at all. The dialogue is amazing in the dub. I became obsessed with jazz because of it, because this entire soundtrack is one of the greatest things put to anything. It's like this jazz fusion rock brilliance and made me join jazz band in middle school, so it really has some power there. They don't play Cowboy Bebop in uh, jazz middle school band, though, just so you know. The biggest detriment of the movie is that they don't use the theme song from the show. <laughs> I wonder why. I guess the Cowboy Bebop anime and the movie, they were by different animation studios. Oh, so they couldn't? I'm not sure. Maybe that could be the case. I know I wrote down that Cowboy Bebop was by Studio Sunrise, but Studio Bones did Cowboy Bebop the movie. Netflix is uh, doing Cowboy Bebop, so if Netflix hearing this, uh, don't f*** up. Just saying. Oh, yeah, like a live version, right? You know, I bet they were planning on up, but now that you said that, they probably aren't. <laughs> I can't speak to anything about it except casting John Cho was the smartest move. Damn straight. He looks amazing. One of the things you just said that I think is so important to comment on, and Kelly Jean, you did the pre-show for our Metropolis anime, and you and I were talking about this last night because we worked the drive-in together. I want to get the 35mm of Mind Game, and you had done like a clip from this animator's other work, and what you said is so key is that anime, it's so huge that you have to be very careful about saying, oh, these are the elements of anime. Because the styles, the genres, the approach, like Mind Game is wildly experimental and it looks like sort of contemporary and psychological and about relationships. I've actually never seen it, but I want to see it. It's by one of my favorite animation directors. It's Miyazaki Yuaza. We did an anime series just before COVID shut us down and we were only one or two from being done. So I got introduced to Satoshi Kon and I think of the Satoshi Kons that I saw and I love them all. But I think a Millennium Actress and Perfect Blue, like I saw those two and I was like, oh, snap, you can make an anime that's sort of as psychological and unsettling as a David Lynch or a Fritz Lang movie. I didn't realize like anybody had done that, which just shows my ignorance. And that blew me away. And the other one I loved was Vampire Hunter D, which I know is a really early anime, roughly compared to what we're talking about. I think Vampire Hunter D is like 1985. And I actually think, Connor, to your point, I think it was an OVA. But the thing about Vampire Hunter D was I'd never seen a movie that takes place 10,000 years in the future. And it was weirdly... This amazing horror, fairy tale, sexual, psychological, 
world building. It was it felt like maybe it was the medieval ages, but then there were touches of the future in it. I'd never thought to think that way. So anime had really it lit a spark in me that like, oh, wait, there's a whole different way of thinking about cinema. And why can't you mash up stuff? And why can't you mash up wildly different tones like fairy tale and psychological adult and world building? And and I think anime for filmmakers, if you're open to it, can really explode your brain in terms of how you can approach cinema in terms of tones and genre and this and that. Could you give us a few of your favorites that are maybe off the beaten path? Oh, for sure. I feel like most of my favorites are kind of off the beaten path. Yeah, my favorite anime TV show comes from the Madhouse Company. Just growing up, I noticed all my favorite animes and movies have come in from Madhouse. I mean, all of Satoshi's Khan films are by Madhouse. Mind Games by Madhouse, but my favorite anime TVs, two of them are Kaiba and the Tatami Galaxy, which is both by the animation director who did Mind Game. He also did Ping Pong, the anime, which is my all-time favorite. It's not by Madhouse Company, though. This is when he kind of went freelance and made his own animation studio. It's called Science Saru. That was in, like, 2013. He made Ping Pong, like, 2014. I've never seen any of it, but that clip was incredible. Are you included in the pre-show? Oh, thank you. It's so good. It's about, like, these two best friends. They start learning Ping Pong at a little Ping Pong place that's run by an older woman. But then they end up in high school. They end up in the high school Ping Pong club and that's when things kind of start to get serious it's not just a fun game anymore and these two best friends they kind of are like opposites but yet complement each other and it's really cool to see the dynamic and how each of the characters grow when i look at his anime it's like i've never seen a style like that before like in the 1990s like sailor moon dragon ball z card captor sakura they all have that certain style even the 80s anime ghibli they have that style to it for the era the year i guess but when i look at mazaki usa's stuff it's just very different it's wild it's chaotic it's like visually stimulating yet the characters are just charming they're lovable and they're funny. I have nothing off the beaten path. As I mentioned earlier, <laughs> I have the most sort of basic Daniel, I bet. We have probably the same origin. For me, growing up, it was Dragon Ball Z on Toonami because at that point, there was like this, I think, deep well of episodes. And so you would just like watch every day. You know, you'd go and you'd watch them like scream and charge up a beam for 30 minutes and you'd be like man i sure i sure hope they shoot that beam tomorrow and then you'd show up and maybe they would and maybe they wouldn't and then my other favorite again not a super obscure one but i love the akira movie that's a classic it's just so big and grand and weird and interesting and i've dabbled in other stuff i like miyazaki stuff my most controversial anime opinion is that i'm a little more neutral on evangelion personally no that's reasonable <laughs> yeah, yeah, especially the last couple episodes of that show. I remember being like, oh, I don't know about this one. <laughs> no, I heard the fourth movie that just came out, I think either 2021, 2020. I'm not sure how the reviews were. If you don't know, Craig, Neon Genesis Evangelion, and, and for everybody else, it was like a, a very famous mecha show from the, the 90s, right? But very famously, they ran out of money. <laughs> and so the last like two episodes are like slideshows of words and character close-ups and the thoughts of the characters. I still love it, though. <laughs> Some people really like it, and maybe if I went back into it knowing that that was what I was getting into, I'd like it more. And I kind of did, but I kind of just remember being like, hmm. They ended up doing a, a movie called The End of Evangelion that sort of finished it up kind of proper, and then the last ten years they've been doing these... Rebuild. There's four movies that are like the series redone with like modern aesthetics, but then they change a bunch of the story, which is kind of bizarre, but they're like 
an hour and a half, a season of the show in an hour and a half. And they're actually, I think they're pretty pretty great. I've seen the first two or three for sure of the rebuilds. Those were pretty good. This is an anime itself but coming out of that, Hideaki Anno, who did Evangelion his live action Shin Godzilla. One of the great last shots of the last 20 years in my opinion. Yeah, it's obviously very influenced by his work on Evangelion to the point that it even has very similar like editing styles and even some exact music from Evangelion is just in Shin Godzilla. That I would definitely, if people haven't seen and again, it's it's live action, but it feels very influenced by anime, and I love that movie. Anime was interesting because it was sort of part of my push into physical media as a teenager because so much of when I was getting into stuff and starting to use the internet as the resource for this information, there was no other way to obtain things in the States except to import them or get these awful like bootleg copies. And part of that was that DVD market that like had access to these. Like at Suncoast? Yeah, Suncoast or FYE. It was just anything you could get your hands on because you had Pokemon cards. There was like a run of stuff that existed to like sell the game along with it which worked so well on me but also just kept making me want more and more and more like Sailor Moon Gundam Wing Yu-Gi-Oh pretty much anything that had a card game attached I would watch the show so that I felt like I got the card game better but there was a few things the ones that I've always returned to that I think are still sort of hard to find in good means uh, I should say like Future Boy Conan is this really good one from the 70s that I didn't know till a few years ago Hayao Miyazaki made it it was like 10 years before his feature debut but it's this anime about like sort of a post-apocalyptic earth that's really good and I was really into Lupin the Third for a long time which was Miyazaki's debut he has a great Lupin the Third movie that I feel like it's underseen in the in the Studio Ghibli stuff because it wasn't technically Studio Ghibli but it's branded as that when it's redistributed and it's very good I think the most interesting thing about to animate to me is my 10, 11 year old brain thought I only wanted action, but then there was stuff. I don't know that anyone subscribed to Shonen Jump. It was so dope. It was like a monthly subscription service that would have a chapter of an anime, but there were like 10 in the subscription. So it was like a big, thick magazine. And it was like one chapter, which if you buy like a proper manga, it's a bunch of chapters, but that was one a month. It was kind of like a comic book subscription, but like even less stuff. But it was like the ticket in. You felt like you had found this incredible gem of a thing. And it was stuff like Fruit Baskets, Ranma One Half, this whole bunch of stuff that has television, which you'd read that, you wouldn't be satisfied, so you'd hunt down the shows. I tried to subscribe to Crunchyroll one time and just felt overwhelmed because there's I've never heard of 90% of them, and there's this huge fan base to each of them. It's kind of like beautiful because you clear, if you wanted to get in, like you could throw a rock and probably find something amazing. And most recently that, what was the big movie that just came out? Demon Slayer. Which I think is the biggest anime movie in terms of box office ever now, but is like, it's a sequel to the anime. But if you haven't watched the first season, it's a direct sequel. So there's no like previously on and it killed. During the pandemic, I think was still the biggest anime release in the States ever. This one thing like broke through the pandemic to like theaters being sort of open and killed. And the other thing I was going to say is I've actually, as a humble brag, I work a lot with G-Kids out of New York. They have Studio Ghibli's, um, they're their American distribution and they work with Studio Trigger and they work with, they put out all of uh, Mamoru Hosoda's work, like Wolf Children, Summer Wars. He did Digimon back in the day, the Digimon movie at least. They deal with the American dubs and I do a lot of the behind the scenes stuff with these actors and they're super nervous about these dubs because the fandom is so strong that they want something that works where you can watch the sub, you can watch the dub, but they want to do respect to the work. And 
they're really nervous because if it's bad, then their reputation as like a voice actor is on the line for fans of the show that want something that is correct and pays tribute. And a lot of that comes down to how it's translated. They go through like multiple translations to ensure that it still holds true to like the, it seems like a very stressful position, but talking to some of the directors, especially the animation directors and seeing them at like these conventions where they're just heralded as like these celebrities in the way that actors are like these artists are seen in the same light it seems to the fans and i think it's, it's really cool it's a whole different world and it's kind of beautiful and very scary to me from the outside it's just like overwhelmingly rich for stuff to look at again i had a phase in high school and half the stuff i watched i couldn't watch on tv because half the things that were there they didn't have so I went to a site, and I think you know this, Kelly, called Kiss Anime. Oh, yeah, I've used that. I've used that constantly, constantly, and until the bastards took it down. No, I had to use my friend's Funimation to watch some of the stuff, but RIP, Kiss Anime. Like Daniel said, I saw the Demon Slayer movie without seeing the show, and without seeing the show and watching the movie first, honestly, one of the, probably one of the greatest things I've ever seen in my life. I teared up. I never thought I would, but I did. I cried because I'm not going to say anything because some of you have to watch it and maybe some of you won't, but I cried. It's like one of the most emotional part of the whole damn movie. It felt like seeing probably Ryan where Tom Hanks is dying and Matt Damon going to Hey, earn this. And like, that's, that's exactly how it felt. Also, I want to say when, when, what's, ah, I forgot the freaking name. Gene Hackman. No, not Gene Hackman. He would never watch this. God, what's wrong with you, man? I feel like that's not fair. He's like retired writing like crime novels. He could have a Crunchyroll subscription and be living it up. Yeah, totally, dude. Why are you so close-minded? He's not going to understand what the hell's going on. Wait, you're a dis- you were discrediting that man. Ageist. <laughs> you're all monsters. One thing that was big in my friend group were the fan edits of stuff or redubs. People would make their own. They would like re-edit scenes and dub their friends in. And for some of my friends who I won't name because they're still working, it was like a platform into editing and like voiceover work where they like discovered that there's this thing they can do where they could take, like especially for Japanese shows that we would get that had subs that did not exist in English yet. They would have like their friends with our awful microphones record like new, like the translation as fan edits. There's a YouTube channel that does that and mainly with Dragon Ball Z that did that. They're, they're called Team Four Star. They have tons of views and it's sort of this interesting platform for My it. My brother actually tried, made videos like that. Sometimes he still does. He like gets to see anime and he'll like, he'll re-edit it. He used to like get his friends and like they would make their own funny parodies. Yeah, but sometimes people will take the anime and the clip from something else and kind of tie it together to make like a meme or something funny out of it. They'll like combine animes that they like so that characters can like have relationships and add all the voice work or add the subs. It's like a wild, there's a, a world of stuff happening behind our behind the scenes have you guys ever seen i don't know who the dude was who did this or guy who did it but they took the old 1980s gi joes and they were the psas from gi joe and then they would put in new voices and make them wholly inappropriate and my favorite one was these two kids going to like the kitchen and the new voiceover was like they were stoned and they just had the munchies and then there was a soldier at the window and he just started singing like reggae ska did you guys ever see that and then the kids started singing reggae ska and then they just kept going going on and on. I was like, what is this? And I think this is something totally different, but it's sort of fascinating hearing what you're saying that anime can also inspire fans to become movie makers, writers, editors. Like there's that sense that I can engage with this that sometimes other kinds of cinema don't have. I mean, just listening to you guys, it sounds like anime fans, you know, an anime expo that fans all over the world engage with this stuff on huge levels that I don't even think we've scratched the surface of. It's... 
the characters and the storytelling. I think it's also charming, and I really love how emotional anime gets compared to things like here in America or even like Western cartoons that I've experienced growing up. I just love a good movie or a story that will make me cry or just make me feel something, and I just get a lot of that from anime, and that's why I'm attracted to it so much. With the fact that it's just drawn to animation, it lets you push reality into things that you couldn't make in real life, I think. And this is not a knock at all. As much as I love Brad Bird stuff or Disney stuff or American stuff, there is more of a like an animation formula in American animation where it's like it's got to be Hero's Quest and they're either going to fall in love or they're siblings and they're going to overcome something. And that's just sort of the movie you're going to see every time. Whereas when you watch an anime movie, you never know what you're going to get. Like, I remember, I know this is really weird, but when I saw Porco Rosso, Hayao Miyazaki, and I was like, they just decided that this guy got turned into a pig, but he was a World War II, like, flyer, World War I flyer. And they never explained why he got turned into a pig. He just got turned into a pig. But he's still a pilot. And it's kind of a 1940s thing, but there are these aerial battles. And then at one point, he has an out-of-body heaven experience. I was like, this is beautiful and really, like, never seen anything like this. And yet, weirdly classic. So it's like anime can do anything. And I really love how experimental it is compared to... the at least animation that's traditionally Disney, because a lot of it's very like pipeline, full animation, house style, like you have to fill up all like the frames, but in anime, it's like you can experiment. You can maybe put like more drawings, more frames here, or maybe less frames here, less drawings here. It's limited animation versus full animation. I think a big part of it might just be the fact that in America, animation is mostly relegated to children and family stuff and then to the degree that it's not it's like adult it's like this is it's got boobs in it <laughs> we got sausage we party got, yeah you know what i mean like and it seems like japanese anime is just the way we use live action film and that it could be anything like you could do what we were talking about earlier about it. it's like hard to generalize it because it doesn't have that sort of genre staples the same way that animation does in our country and also there's all the fan service so so now we're here at pop culture and final thoughts i am rereading my favorite plays of shakespeare right now every 10 years roughly i try to reread my favorite novel which is james joyce's ulysses and then i try to reread as many shakespeare's as i have time for this go around i decided to leave out some of the shakespeare's that i mean they're all great they're all worth it but i i just was sort of i'm like, like condensing the ones and i just read what's my favorite shakespeare comedy 12th night it's also known as or what you will it's very funny all shakespeare comedies have a second title or a lot of them do and and they all are the same the, the, the secondary title is always like whatever however you want it to be as you like it <laughs> like what you will but Twelfth Night is the one where these twins uh, they get shipwrecked and one of the twins disguises herself as a man and then of course like the Duke falls in love with her and then this other woman falls in love with her because she's disguised as a man and so it weirdly is about sexuality and fluid sexuality in the 15th and 16th century and then there's this beautiful subplot that's really problematic where these sort of drunks 
uh, decide to play a really horrible practical joke on this really stuffy sort of officious bureaucrat. And even though he is really stuffy and officious and annoying, by the end of the play, you're like, he didn't deserve that. And yet it's all played for comedy. But you realize that there's this beautiful A and B story about deceit and whether your deceit is well-intentioned, like it is with Viola, who disguises herself as a man, or ill-intentioned, the way the drunks make fun of Malvolio, you realize that deceit is still going to cause a lot, a lot of problems. And so it's a hilarious play. But at the end, you're like, wow, that's why you're Shakespeare. <laughs> I just highly encourage everybody to read a, read Shakespeare and Twelfth Night. And I loved it. I've been watching a lot of movies lately, man. This seems out of character for you. I just watched an Alan Partridge movie like two times in a row. It is hilarious. One of the funniest British comedies I have ever seen. I know who this guy Alan Partridge was until I saw it. And I had to look him up like, oh, this this guy does that, all right. And also, I rewatched Roller Coaster as well because uh, me and Daniel we saw the Sparks Brothers documentary at the Arrow, and I did not know that the Sparks Brothers were in Roller Coaster. So I went back and watched it, and boom, there they are. Also, Roller Coaster is amazing. I recommend it very much. Seventies disaster movie and sense around. You should really do it. You know. Go grow some guts, monster, because you don't show anything good. Yeah, show a movie, Craig. Yeah, <laughs> Craig. When I grow enough guts and I have the self-realization that I've been a monster my whole life, when those two things happen, audience look forward to Roller Coaster. Also, uh, I rewatched uh, River's Edge uh, last night. Very dark, very beautiful. Crispin Glover is amazing this film. I, I forgot how amazing and stylish this film is. And uh, Keanu Reeves. What a breakout role for this dude. Doing a serious role first instead of doing comedies. Because this looks like a dude who was meant to do comedies, but he ended up doing a serious role, which is amazing. And I, I long for that. It's incredible. Edward and I went and saw The Sparks Brothers. It was my second time watching it. It's a great movie. I'm not a big um, music documentary guy because I, I typically would watch something of a band I know. And I have a, a base level knowledge of someone like Sparks. But I think I'm realizing and I'm, I'm trying to find other stuff that's in the same vein. But a great music documentary, which I think the Sparks Brothers is, if you're a fan, it's just a joy because you love this thing and you're learning about it. But if you're not and it's done the way this is done, you spend so much time watching this sort of underdog story develop and their successes and their failures that you're a fan by the end of it and you come out of it with 10 different songs in your head and you want to dive into the music which I think is a difficult thing to pull off, and I think it does really well. If you like Edgar Wright's work, it's all the better. You'll have a, an idea of sort of what this can kind of feel like, but also it's a great little thing. And then I'm one episode from finishing Mare of Easttown, which I'm uh, catching up on. I highly recommend Mare of Easttown. It's the Kate Winslet HBO sort of detective thing. And it's very smartly focuses on character first, murder mystery second, so that everything that happens as this story unfolds is all rooted in character in a way that whatever the resolution is, whether it satisfies you or not, you care about these people from the get-go. And I think that's an achievement and it's it's a great show. I did nothing of note this week. Watch me play video games at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz. I recently I started my summer school class at OCC, Orange Coast College. It's a history of radio and television. I just started, but so far it's really interesting. I saw this documentary for my class. It was in black and white. It was called Empire of the Air, The Men Who Made Radio. So I basically learned how radio was made. Was, there's a lot of drama, a lot of court actions going on. But in this documentary, I heard this really important quote. I feel like this could apply to film, art, animation, anything like how these inventions and discoveries start out as toys and hobbies, then corporate assets, then assets to military industrial complex. 
I don't know, just how, like, sometimes the government, like, propaganda in movies could happen, or even in television. They could, like, try and target and market certain ideas and things to people. Makes me, like, ooh, wary. The film school I went to, there was a branch of our film school. I guess I use branch of whatever as almost a Freudian slip, but they were working with the military and creating video games that were training soldiers who were going over to Afghanistan and Iraq, and they wanted them to understand the layout of cities like Kabul and Baghdad. And But what they did was they created these video games based on intel they had, and the soldiers would play these first-person games to learn before they went over there. And that was just what we were told. A lot of stuff we were not told. That stuff, like, leaked out. It's called Call of Duty, man. <laughs> Even, like, the internet, how these little things turn into such big, important just contributions to society in the end. They really impact us, I think. I remember learning once, like, someone said, like, moving pictures were the most influential thing on, like human civilization or something. Forgot who said that. That was Edwin. For our audience, please check out Kelly Jean at K-L-L-Y-J-J-N. I actually get to use my knowledge of the military alphabet here. At Kilo Lima Lima Yankee Juliet Juliet November. So please just check out everything on secretmovieclub.com. You can write us a community at secretmovieclub.com. This Friday, we are doing three spoofs from the 80s, which I love. Airplane, Top Secret, Naked Gun, all on 35mm. On Saturday, we're doing a double dose of Kubrick, Paz of Glory, Barry Lyndon. Two movies I'm obsessed with, but like all of Kubrick's stuff, you kind of get obsessed with. We have a film festival where we want your submissions for. Remember that submission deadline is July 12th. Just go to secretmovieclub.com to find out all the rules about the short film fest. And uh, let's give it up for Kelly Jean. Thank you for being on our podcast. Thank you for having me. It was the first. We hope not the last. And we just encourage everybody to uh, check out anime and write us on your thoughts on anime. Uh, next week, we are going to be talking actually about spoofs and parodies, which is its own genre. I hope they're all interesting podcasts, but that genre specifically there's a lot to talk about good and bad, and we're going to be kicking off by discussing Airplane Top Secret Naked Gun. As always, all of this stuff is edited by our chief creative content officer, Connor Lloyd Cruz. If you're like, wow, Secret Movie Club is really doing more than they did 15 months ago, that's because of people like Connor and Kelly and Daniel and Edwin and Steven and Heather and Casey and AJ and Sarah and Marina and uh, all the people who are coming on to help. I'm very grateful. It only grows because of the team. And that's it. All right, guys. I will see you next week. Have a great week. Peace. Bye-bye. Bye. That'll make you happy. What are we doing next week? That'll make you happy, Edwin. We're going to do spoof movies, parodies, things like that. Ah, finally. Finally. (laughs) For once, for the first time in a year, we've done a topic Edwin likes. Edwin, I'm just going to ask you a point blank question. How many times have you been pleading, advocating for a spoof movie podcast? Until today. Yeah, zero. Goose egg. And you talk about it as if you asked for a year and people ignored you. I've been silent because I don't don't like to bring up things. I I wanted to do a handmade Edwin. Decidedly. I'm calling shenanigans on that. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's (laughs) You're shenanigans, you monster (laughs) from hell.